If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel according to Matthew. And while you're turning there, always remember this. It's not just splitting hairs. There's not four Gospels. It's only one Gospel. It has four accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. There's not four Gospels. It's like the book of the Revelation. It's singular. If you read the first chapter of the book of the Revelation, it's called the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And in there are Revelations, but it's not the book of the Revelations, and it's not the Gospels. It's the Gospel. Chapter 2. I want to begin at verse 1 so that we have a background for this message, which I have titled, The Christmas That Almost Wasn't. Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when ye have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. When they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeareth to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophets, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth, and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, In Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted. Because they are not. With this in mind, talk to you today about the Christmas that almost wasn't. Now, this title of my message actually comes from a movie that was made in 1966, children's movie. The plot of that movie doesn't really much matter, but I'll just give you a little summary of it, of how a lawyer who goes broke happens to meet Santa Claus, who is back on his rent and needs help, and so the movie goes along those lines, and this lawyer helps Santa, and finally the owner of the land, who was uh, pretty much the same as Ebenezer Scrooge in the Christmas Carol, Dickens' Christmas Carol, he finally becomes a good guy and gives gifts to the children. The movie and what I want to talk about today have nothing in common, except the title, The Christmas That Almost Wasn't. And the theme of what I want to talk to you about today is perhaps more important now than maybe, maybe ever before in history. It's on the sovereignty of God. We read here in verse 13, Joseph, like the wise men, was warned in a dream, do not go back to Jerusalem, go to Egypt, go this way. The wise men were warned not to go back. 
The title of that 1966 movie fits what I want to talk to you about today on this subject of the sovereignty of God. You see, it says here that Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. That's the will of man. But no matter what Herod did and how many children were slaughtered by this maniacal individual, Herod, at least I don't know. Estimates, I suppose, are out there as to how many thousands or tens of thousands of children from two years old all the way down to infants just brutally slaughtered, brutally murdered, only because Herod feared, and I guess to some degree believed, that there was a baby born that was going to grow up to be, as we read over here, a governor. Now, the word governor doesn't quite do it for us here because we start to think of governors of states here in the United States. That's not what this word means. We'll read a scripture later on where the word means a sovereign, and I'll explain that to you as well. Not just a political man, but someone who's going to rule greater than Herod, greater than the Caesars, greater than everyone. And what I want you to see now is that Herod did seek to kill that child, but was not successful. And even though so many innocent lives were taken, the life of Jesus Christ at that point was not taken. And let me mention that when his life would be taken on that cross at Golgotha or Calvary, Jesus said in no uncertain terms, no one takes my life. I lay it down. I'll put in the word willingly. I willingly lay it down. I lay it down of my own will. No man takes it. No man could take it because God is sovereign. It's always been important throughout history to understand this, especially in difficult days and difficult circumstances individually, with everything that we are seeing and hearing in the news and in our world, it is critical to understand that God is sovereign. And we'll get into that in just a second. You need to consider what I'm going to share with you right now and really meditate on it. So you may want to take notes and just write these verses down. The first one is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Thessalonica, and he says this, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because, now listen, when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God which effectually worketh also in you that believe. That is a critical verse, along with the other couple I'm going to give you right now. The Apostle Paul is saying, you receive from us the word of God. It's not the word of men, and it's working in you. Then we have 2 Peter chapter 1, where the Apostle writes, he says that, knowing this first, that no prophecy is of any private interpretation. That's connected. That's verse 20. Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 20, is connected to verse 21, 20 and 21. Let me say it again, verse 20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. Listen. For the prophecy of old time came not by the will of man. Now these are the verses you get to meditate on for some time. So write them down. The prophecy of old time came not by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13, 2 Peter 1 verses 20 and especially 21 tells us that even though God used men to write down words that were not their words, they were his. And as you may know, Almost 40 men wrote this Bible with over 63, maybe closer to 64,000. I don't know myself if anybody knows the exact number of how many references go back and forth from Old Testament to New Testament and just lock in over a period of 1,500 years. Now think about going back today, 1,500 years. That's a long, long time. That puts us in the era of when the Masoretes uh, put the... Little markings on the Hebrew so that the Hebrew language wouldn't be lost and be properly pronounced. Goes us back to the start of Islam and other things. Going back a long, long time. The Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years by 40 different men. And yet they all were in these scriptures that I'm giving to you. 
You received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. The prophecy of old time came not by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, the Holy, Holy Ghost. Then finally, one we're familiar with, 2 Timothy 3, 15, 16, and 17. I just quoted part of it just a moment ago during prayer, that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, Paul talking now to Timothy, that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise to salvation, through faith which is in Christ Jesus. He said, for all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, we've gone over this word many times, the breath of God, not men. You know, we read about people who are inspired musicians, artists, other creative people, and they may talk about their inspiration, how they got their inspiration, and that is not what is meant in 2 Timothy 3:16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly or thoroughly furnished unto all good works. 2 Timothy 3:16, 2 Peter 1, really verse 21. And 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Then, of course, there's many other scriptures just giving you these sort of basis. Says that what is written in the 31,108 verses of this book, in the 1,189 chapters, in the 788,200, I think it's 58 words, not one of them came by man. Not one. The 31st chapter of Proverbs talks about every word of God is pure. He's a shield unto those that put their trust in him. Every single one, every single word was given by the breath of God. That's what that word inspiration means, theopnistus. God breathed on 40 different men to write his words in a book. And the reason that this is so important is because as you read the Bible, you must know these are not the words of men. It is the word of God. I've shared with you before well over 400 times the statement, thus saith the Lord, is used, and most of those times is in the book of Jeremiah. But it's used all over the Bible. This is God speaking. And then we have all the other phrases. God said, God spoke, and so on. So you have to consider, the book that you're reading is not a book on philosophy. It's not just the philosophy of the Jews, of which almost all the authors hear some debate about, well, Luke, really. But really, you could say the whole book is Jewish. And it's not a philosophy of Jews. It's the word or words of God. Every one. Every single solitary one. And though the Bible speaks of so many, many things, it talks about God being absolutely sovereign. This is what I would share with you and submit to you that you need to hold in your mind that nothing happens in life to you individually, to nations, as we'll talk about that, to governments, it doesn't matter. Nothing happens without God being over it all, either willing it to be done or permitting it to be done. Not a single thing has ever happened in your life, ever, that God is not sovereign over it all. The problem of pain, as C.S. Lewis wrote about that, and the problem of tragedies like this one here, is where we question. And there are legitimate questions that we ask, and we don't always have the answers. Why the evil and a loving God and all of this stuff, which I'm not getting into today. There are answers for that, but that's not our subject. Our subject is God who rules and reigns. He always has, and he always will. And that, my friend, will be a comfort to you if you can accept it, not just intellectually, but like I told you last week, when it goes down by faith deep into your heart, it will comfort you in the nighttime, comfort you in your sorrows, encourage you, God is truly in control. It's not just something that people put on a piece of paper, a parchment, and you frame it, and it looks good on the wall. God actually is in charge and always has been of every single event. Now, let me just mention this in case I forget. If you make a bad choice, and people do, or you sin against God, that's not on God. And don't think that I'm implying that, but he permitted it. So let's look at this word sovereign or sovereignty. Let me give you the definition from the dictionary. Listen, the sovereign is the one who exercises power without limitation. Sovereignty is essentially the power to make laws, even as Blackstone defined it, Black's Law Dictionary. 
The term also carries implications of autonomy. To have sovereign power is to be beyond the power of others to interfere. God is sovereign. Man is not. The greatest rulers that have ever lived, and we can name a long list of them, always had some limitation to their power. You and I frequently come to the limitations of our patience, of our understanding of things, and so on. God has no limitations at all. Life and death are in the hands of God. And that's not to say that everything God does pleases us, but keep this in mind. God does not have any obligation to always please us. God, because he's sovereign, has no obligation at all, even though he has done what he has done in saving us. Just three days ago, and you can look this up for yourself, as the expression goes, Google it. Even though understanding Google did not invent the search engine on the internet. There are others. You can look it up for yourself and watch the video of what happened three days ago in Turkey. One of the lawmakers was standing up giving a very impassioned speech about Allah taking vengeance on Israel. Quoting from the book of Genesis. And on and on he was going in a very, almost I'll say Mussolini type of style. Pounding. And then all of a sudden as he finishes his speech, she falls backwards with a massive heart attack. Three days ago. And then a day or so later at the hospital he passed away. And the interesting thing is that the verse he was reading from was the verse where God says to Abraham that I will bless them that bless you and curse them that curse you. Amen. Look it up for yourself. I saw it with my own eyes and then I researched it. I vetted it. I wanted to make sure that what I'm reading is or seeing was, was true. And you know why? Oh, other people have said things and they don't die because God is sovereign. And in mention to, uh, about Israel, we could also mention the church as well, you and me. Jesus said of us, he said, the Father's you know, put you in my hands and no one is able to take you out. In this world, that's comfort. In any world, at any time, that's a comfort. No one can move you. No one can take away your place. No one can take away your inheritance. I was thinking this verse to myself during the week as so many verses go through my mind during the week. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. May not be precious in your sight. It's precious in God's sight. You have to understand that God does what he wants. That in saving you and bringing you to his house, to his kingdom, that's what he wanted. And if God did not want that, you and I would not be going. Because he's sovereign. And there is no limitation. His arm is not shortened that it cannot reach you. His ear is not deaf that it cannot hear your prayers. He's sovereign. And there's no limitation to his power. Watching this man fall backward to the floor was a powerful illustration of the power of Jehovah. Amen. The God and the only one true God who revealed himself to so many, but while named Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so on, David, and, and down to the prophets, right down to here, so that we have not received the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, Amen. which will effectually work in us, if it's not already for you, and those of us that believe as these have believed, as everyone or anyone has believed throughout history. Now, the Christmas that almost wasn't was the plan of man. Herod, in his jealousy and envy and fear, tried to kill the Savior. I think to myself, he probably would have spared all the other children if he knew for certain which one was the one called the Christ child. But since he didn't know and taking no chances, thousands and tens of thousands of young children, two years and under, as we just read, were killed in an attempt to stop what I will just loosely call Christmas. But he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. Because in his sovereignty and in this particular time, he spoke to the wise men and to Joseph on more than one occasion in a dream. He says, don't go back. And why is this? Because God knows everything. Amen. There's nothing that God doesn't know. Listen, let me just throw something in here. It's wise for us to be truthful with God about ourselves because he knows it anyway. And when we come to him with our request, it's not like it's a surprise to God. It's just one of his principles where he says, you have not because you ask not. It's a principle. Principle of prayer. Principle of faith. I believe would have spared all those thousands of children if he knew for sure that one is the Christ child. But even if he brought all of the legions of Rome, all of the soldiers given to him in Israel, he would not be able to kill 
Jesus. They tried to stone him, remember? Coming out of the synagogue, they tried to take him to a cliff. And it says he walked right through them. No man takes my life. Why? Because he's sovereign. I want to just mention something here as something to apply and something to think about. Herod was in a rage and fearful, as I mentioned. But I want to just say something about anger that I read that I think is a wise, wise saying. Someone has defined anger as an emotional punishment inflicted upon ourselves because of the behavior of other people. Think about that. People, some will read the Bible and have an issue with this here that children were killed. Certainly a, a terrible thing. And other things in the Bible. But God is still sovereign. He rules over mankind. He rules over you. And this is critical to our understanding in order for us to have peace in this life. As the saying goes, bad things do happen to good people, but God is still sovereign. And we don't always have all the answers. I certainly don't have all the answers when questions are asked of me in certain, certain respects to certain events in people's lives. And sometimes I, I don't know because I don't know. I just know that God is sovereign and I know to trust him. So let's look at this here today and let's look at, first of all, that God is sovereign over every nation. Think of any country right now that you want to think of. You can start with the United States of America or Canada or Mexico or Brazil or any of the countries in South America or Central America. You could think about China. You could think about Russia. You could think about Spain or Portugal or England, Greenland, Iceland. doesn't matter. Think of any country and God is sovereign over every single one of them all at once. doesn't matter what form of government they have. Doesn't matter who's in charge. Ultimately, God is sovereign over every single nation. Psalm 22, verse 28. The Bible says, The kingdom is the Lord's, and he is the governor. There's that word again. Among the nations. But that doesn't mean a political appointee or someone who is elected. It means a sovereign. He's the sovereign over every nation. Now, just go back for just a moment. Let's think about countries that are, we're concerned about. The communist countries and other countries and all of this. And then remember this verse here from Psalm 22:28: For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is the sovereign among the nations. That we are, at this moment, fulfilling the plan of God that was given from the very beginning after man's sin. Though we read that it was planned before man was ever created. Another deep thought requires a lot of thinking. And still, at least in my estimation, the answer is never 100% clear. In Psalm 47, verse 7, For God is the king of all the earth. Sing ye praises with understanding. There it is. Sing praises with understanding. You know, I advocate this almost every single week when we sing songs. We sing and ask God to lead us and do this and all these different things. But we have to sing with understanding. And the understanding is coming from this book as it is in truth. Not the word of men, but the word of God. Psalm 47, verse 8, God reigns over the heathen. Right? This is Israel talking about Gentiles. God sits upon the throne of his holiness. He rules over the heathen. Remember that as you're watching the news. Psalm 103 verse 19. The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens and his kingdom ruleth over all. To the natural man, to the natural understanding, it doesn't appear that way because of how we judge. How we judge is good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. But here in the book, we learn that bad things do happen to good people and good things sometimes do happen to bad people. But in the end, and for this moment, God is sovereign and has a reason for every single thing that he does. Whether he ordained it or permits it, in the end, he's still responsible, I suppose. Not for sin, but just he's responsible for saying, let that go, let it be. And this is how it will end. Theologian Abraham Cooper says it this way. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Not a country, not a mountain, not a river, not a valley, nothing where Christ doesn't say, mine. All the earth is mine. In Ezekiel we read, all souls are mine. The fate depends on the person's decision, but they're all mine. Your soul always has belonged to Christ, sovereign. Now you received him as savior. Then you made a choice with your will, one of volition, but still your soul belonged to God. The atheist who says there is no God, the book says he's a fool, but he's still mine. Mine, 
People can say whatever they want, but God is still sovereign. And I will repeat myself on this one here. If you do not fully understand this, your chances of having the perfect peace of Isaiah 26.3 is diminished because you're going to judge by your own mind, the natural mind. You're going to judge by your own eyes, the natural eyes. You're going to make decisions without consulting God. Every man's ways are right in his own eyes. Another one says, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his ways. You're going to make mistakes, not intentionally perhaps, but you're going to make mistakes thinking that you are the sovereign. And man has what I have always called limited sovereignty. We can do good, we can do bad. But we don't have unlimited sovereignty, only God does. And in the end, and this is the thing here, when we are talking about eschatology, the end times, and all of this, of which we see signs every day and every week, as you know, keep this in mind. Behind all of the bad, behind the great tribulation, or just after it, beyond all of the darkness is incredible light. Amen. And a kingdom that has no end. Amen. As God explains to Daniel in his book and writes there for us, that there is a stone cut without human hands that will dominate the whole world. You say, well, it should have happened by now. And I say, no, it should not have. Because God also had his own planner. And he writes down all these dates that are known only to him. We don't know, but it's going to happen. So we're exhorted to look up, for your redemption is getting close when you see these signs. That should be in the heart of every professing Christian. Sadly, it's not simply because this truth is not known or misunderstood. God is sovereign. And once again, let me repeat myself. Though you yourself may be disturbed, as I am, by things I've read about in history, including what we've read here in Matthew chapter 2, I must remind myself that God is sovereign. That gives me peace, or at least mitigates the sorrow of why did this happen to me? There's probably nobody here in this room or watching by live stream or listening by way of radio that hasn't at one point at least thought, why me? But what you must understand is that every single person on the planet has thought that. Why me? The question is, why not you? And also, the Lord tests all of his servants. That's a guarantee. But he's still sovereign. Without limitations. There is no limitation to God. Newscaster Paul Harvey once told the story of a bombing during Second World War that was supposed to be for Kokura, Japan, as the B-29 was going over there, they ran into some inclement weather where there was a cloud over the main target. They couldn't reach it. As they were running out of gas, the leader of that particular air strike said, okay, let's go to the secondary target, and then yelled, bombs away. Shortly after that, some intelligence had come to an officer who explained that just days before they had moved a huge concentration of American POWs to Kokura. When they ran into the cloud, they ran into the providence and sovereignty of God. Hallelujah. Had they bombed their original target, many of the people that would have been killed would have been American soldiers. And so there's an obstacle in your way. And you say to yourself, how do I get through this and all of this type of thing? Just remember the sovereignty of God. There's a reason he slowed you down or stopped you or redirected you. Because he's sovereign and he cares for his people. You are one of his. And it says, casting all your care upon him. Because he cares for you. And I remind you of the verse. These are not the words of men. Even though Peter wrote those words. It is the word of God. And we must believe that God cares for us. As a group. As a church. And that God cares for you or me as an individual. If you don't believe that. Your chance of having peace. Is minimized. If not perhaps diminished. If not perhaps taken out of the way altogether. Because bad things do happen to good people. And all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That's in this book, written by God, not men. When it comes, why are we shocked? We read that also from Peter. No, from God. We're shocked at this. We're shocked at the condition of the world. Did we not read what the book says about the end of times? And though we don't like it, though we find it tragic, and though we shed many a tear and have this plaintive grief over what we see, we still remind ourselves it's in the plan and sovereignty of God. And God does what he wills because he's God. He rules over the nations. Number two, he rules over every single person, every soul. 
Ezekiel 18, verse 4, Behold, all souls are mine, as the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine, the soul that sins shall die. Psalm 100, verse 3, Know ye that the Lord, he is God, it is he that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people, and the sheep of his pasture. During communion service, I share with you each week, Let's remember him. Jesus said, remember me. And I have said to you, it's partially tongue-in-cheek and partially reality for me. That after all these years, I came to a point where I gave up on Christianity. You say, how can you say that? Because everyone defines it differently. But I never have given up hope on Christ. Look to Jesus. During the 60s, when Chuck Smith was starting the Calvary Chapel Church, then became churches, some of the people that we now call hippies were carrying signs. Christianity, no. Christ, yes. And he in particular liked that, and so do I. I've had more damage done to me by people carrying Bibles than people carrying guns or knives. It's not Christianity as much as it's Christ. It's Jesus. Remember me. Remember my word, thy word, have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So that we can see where we're going. Although the darkness surrounds us like a thick cloud, we have a lamp that shows the path. I am the path, John 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not the words of a man or a mere man or a rabbi, but the words of God himself come in the flesh. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. Thy hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I might learn thy commandments. Psalm 119, verse 73. Psalm 95, verse 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Accidents. We say accidents will happen. But is there really such a thing as an accident? It's an interesting question. If God is sovereign over all, Jesus teaches us that not a single bird falls to the ground today. Not one. Not the smallest. Not the largest. Not one will fall off a tree that I'm pointing to there in the distance, dead, that the Father doesn't know about. And acknowledge that one hair falls off of your head that God doesn't have every single hair of your head numbered. Think about that. Every single hair of your head numbered. We talk about accidents. Here comes a cowboy, a real cowboy, who wants to get some insurance and he's talking to the broker. And the, the broker asks the cowboy, have you been in any accidents? And so, well, I fell off my horse. I was kicked by a raging bull. I was bitten by a rattlesnake. Because originally when he was asked the question, have you been in any accidents? He said, no. Then he talked about these events. So the broker said, aren't these accidents? He said, no, they all did it on purpose. (laughs) You get bit by a dog, it's not an accident. I've been bit twice. It wasn't an accident. Those dogs meant to bite me. One was an Irish setter. We'll figure that out. Is there really such a thing as an accident? Or is God's word mean what it says, that he rules over all? Every little thing. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth him. Psalm 37. He rules over every single soul. And as I said earlier, it doesn't matter if the soul person acknowledges him. It doesn't matter if the person knows who he is. It doesn't matter if the person makes long arguments about God does not exist. He does exist. And your soul is his. And will do with it whatever pleases him. You see, this is a coin with two sides. Not everything, as I mentioned earlier, that God does pleases people. And as I've told you so many, many times over the years, if there wasn't a place like hell that Jesus said there is, then that cross does not make any sense at all. It's not even romantic. It's unintelligent to think Jesus is dying on the cross, of which he talked about, for this reason was I born, that you may be saved, and salvation, all these words that we use, and we got so used to them, we forget what they mean. If there wasn't a place called hell, well, Jesus would have said so. But he didn't. He talks about it. And we cannot forget 
That's what that cross means, whether you have one hanging around your neck or you have some in your house hanging on the wall, whether it's with Jesus on it or not. For me, I don't much pay attention to it either way. I know people make a big issue with Jesus on the cross. I don't make a big issue of it at all. It's a cross, and it reminds us that this is what is the obstacle that's in our way from plunging into eternity without God in the place called hell. That we cling to the cross. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Because God is sovereign. And though men may rack their brains as to why God created hell and all of these different things, or make and invent their own doctrines such as universalism, that in the end everyone will eventually be saved, including Satan. It's not in this book. You received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually works in you that believe also. There is not a soul ever have been born, is born now, or will be born that does not belong to God. And he does what he wills, because he's sovereign. We read in the scriptures, shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, what have you made? And this one is something I tell mostly young people, almost always it's young people, especially when they're trying to get in shape or work out or whatever. And they always compare. People do this. You do this sometimes yourself. You compare yourself to others. Your spirituality, your prayer life, how much you read or don't read the Bible. And then there's other things and size and looks and all these different things. And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians that to compare yourself among yourself is not wise. God made you as you are. What I always tell young people, specifically related to exercise or strength training or anything they're trying to do, be comfortable in your own skin. I know this young man, he's thin, and he eats, constantly eats, but he, he just keeps on. I just can't get big. I said, just be comfortable in your own skin. Be comfortable with your own genetics. And I want to say to you that every soul belongs to God. He made you the way he made you. I hear people talk about the color of their eyes, the shape of their nose. They get fixated on one thing or the other. Their height, too small, too tall. The people that are too small want to be taller. The people that are too tall want to be smaller. It's best for you to be comfortable who you are, the way God made you. I don't, we're not talking about the interior man where you can make choices of what you think. It's talking about who you are. And young people especially need to hear this. I see this in the gym all the time. They want to be like these professional bodybuilders or professional powerlifters. So what do they reach for? Anabolic steroids. And some of them are not young. What does that say to me who's been not only studying the Bible, but studying people for almost 50 years? Their ego is very slim. They think there's something from an outward appearance that impresses people. Well, if you're not well-versed in what steroids do, then you can be impressed. But if you know a steroid-induced individual as opposed to those that are not, you know the difference. It's not true. It's not you. It's not the way God made you. Well, that's an example of, you could apply it to everything else. Every soul is his. And this is the time to press in, as this song said that we sang earlier, that we can know him. Because if you know the Father is holding your hand today, if you know that, not that you read it, but that you actually know that, it brings a comfort. As you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you don't fear any evil because his rod and his staff comfort you. The Father is guiding us. Let me just give you this last truth. God is sovereign over history. He's sovereign over all the nations. Always has been. In Daniel we read about kings. Raises one up, casts another down. It's the decision of God. Here in our country, as you know, I've made mention of this. This is my belief. We get the government we deserve. And it's somehow a reflection of our moral character. So think about that. No matter what you think, because we are Americans and there's many other countries that have a democratic form of government, we have a republic, we must understand that no matter how much we vote, no matter how much we complain, no matter how much we say this is not fair and that's not right, God is sovereign over America and gives us the government we deserve. If my people, 2 Chronicles 7.14, if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray... Then will I hear from heaven, heal their land, and so on. You know the verse. It starts with us. It starts with you. Taking this book not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the words of God. It begins with you. It begins with you saying, as I've mentioned, like Isaiah in chapter 6, here am I. doesn't matter what everybody else is going to do. You're in a song service, and some people are not singing. That should have no effect on you singing. 
or they're not praying, that should have no effect on you praying. And on and on and on. Don't compare yourself with somebody else. You serve the Lord. The closest people to you, the closest person to you, husband or wife, family members, doesn't matter so much what they're doing. It matters what you're doing. God is sovereign over history. We should all be glad today that he is. You know what's surprising? It's not the evil in the world. Is that there's not more of it, given the nature of man. It's not surprising that there's such evil in the world. It's surprising, to some degree, that there's not more of it. But God restrains it, and is restraining it, and in the process, saving you and I. Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes. God gave him the words. It's a review of his life, some of the wisdom that he gleaned from not serving God. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to get and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to rend and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. Notice it's for every purpose under heaven. Not man's purpose, but God's purpose. There's a time for everything. So God is the sovereign over history. And I would like to just share with you, you can read it later, something that has always caused me to really marvel when I read it. And that is the election of the position that Judas held until he committed suicide, betrayed Jesus, committed suicide. And in the first chapter of Acts, the apostles understand the scriptures from the Psalms, that somebody had to take his place, but they don't know who. So they have two good candidates here in Acts chapter 1, but they're not really sure which one is the one that they should be appointing. Now, in church worlds all over the world, places of worship, they call for a business meeting. And ordinarily, ordinarily, it's the one that's the most popular, that's voted in by the people. In my former denomination, at the head there, the general superintendent's place, they actually campaign, just like in politics. Fly all over the country. I didn't sign on for politics. In any case, how do they resolve who is to be the next apostle of the twelve? Justice or Matthias? What they did is they cast lots, which is the same as dice. Well, this seems like to be an unusual way for apostles to be conducting themselves. But they prayed like this. They said, Lord, only you know the hearts of men. And only you know which one is the one to take Judah's place. They cast the lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias. And they said, God says you're the one. With a roll of dice. Which, in the Bible, is called lots. But listen to this verse. Proverbs 16.33 The lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. Think about that. The apostles did it. Not some ragtag group, some cult group. Just a bunch of people saying, we have a word, we have a say, we're this, swear that. The apostles ruled lots. And based on Proverbs 16.33, it says, well, that whole decision there is going to be of the Lord. In my mind, that takes a whole lot of faith to believe that the number that comes up for number one or two or whatever it would be, wouldn't be justice, it would be Matthias. And he indeed took that place. I'm just pointing out the sovereignty of God, that's all. Don't roll the dice when it comes to your Bible. Not wise, not good. Read it, study it. Make sure it's historically and grammatically uh, contextual with the Bible as a whole, with the book as a whole, and so on. I'm just pointing out the sovereignty of God. In Isaiah 41, 4, Who hath wrought and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. Isaiah 43, 10. Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant, whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me, and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. 
And throughout the Bible, we read this going on and on and on and on. God explaining that he is sovereign over everything. Which, once again, should be a comfort to you today, even in the bad times. So I'll finish with this story about sovereignty. And it's the story of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. There's a book that's titled, it was written a long time ago, actually, just a few years after the war. And the title of the book is From Pearl Harbor to Calvary. The lead pilot, Mitsuo Fuchida, was the lead officer when Pearl Harbor was attacked on December the 7th, 1941. He was the lead pilot of 360 aircraft that bombed Pearl Harbor. The lead guy. When he met on the morning of their officers' meeting, the acting admiral there says, I have confidence in you, Fuchida. So he led this attack, and the rest, as you know, is history. After the war, though, he found himself very disillusioned with life. Found himself on a farm. What's life all about? And all of this. Meanwhile, just a couple of years after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, there was a sergeant, army sergeant, who had um, been taken prisoner of war in one of the battles and spent a good amount of time in a prisoner of war camp. But you see, Fuchida had no religion at all, and Desharza was not a Christian. But in the camp, in the prisoner of war camp, they gave all the prisoners three hours to read books. And among those books was this one here. So Jake DeShazer spent hours meditating and memorizing the Bible because it was going to be taken back, not just on the daily basis, but going to be taken away from them for good. And as he read through the Bible, as happened in my case, he gave his life to Christ. And he began to find a love for the Japanese people. It's still only 1943. Went on to be an evangelist, write his own story, which was a little tract. Meanwhile, Fuchida, Fuchido, is struggling with what life is all about, and he reads the Shazer's story. Comes here to America, the two sit down, and these are the words from his book. When I had finished reading Sergeant DeShazer's story, I became more ashamed than ever of my own revengeful spirit. If a Bible could change his life, it might change mine. I bought a Bible for myself. This, too, could explain the transformation in Jake DeShazer's life. I am not ashamed to say that my eyes filled with tears. Immediately, I accepted Jesus as my personal Savior. If you've ever been to Hawaii, and I've been there a couple of times, and you see the place where those planes come through, it brings back all these memories. But what many people do not know is that one of the chief, not the architect, but the chief bombardiers spent the rest of his life shortly after that as an evangelist for Jesus Christ. And the sergeant, who was a prisoner of war by the Japanese, also spent a lifetime in ministry as a missionary to Japan because of the sovereignty of God. I don't control who gets saved and who doesn't. But the one thing that came back to Fuchida's mind over and over again, apparently, as the story goes, love thy enemy. I don't want to love my enemies any more than you do. But it's in God's book, the sovereignty of God. So the question now is this, how will you receive this message here today? Will you go about thinking that you control everything in life? I'm thinking that most of you are old enough to know that you don't. We have a few young people here. I was fortunate, I really was blessed to find out at an early age that the track I was on was a very wrong track. I could have been a lot of things on the bad side, every much as I am on the good side. But God gave me the wisdom to say, that's the wrong way, don't choose it. Go this way. And I'm certainly glad that I did. Now, young people are typically a little ignorant. But you that are older should not be ignorant. You should understand that in life or in death, as the Apostle Paul said, that for, to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To depart and be with Christ, he says, is far better. And once that is lost, the fear of death, and once you know that God is sovereign, that can take a Japanese pilot and make him a Christian, Make him born again, take an American soldier and cause him to love the Japanese because of this book, which is not the work of men, but the word of God, then it will work for you too. God will deliver you from your fears. Why? The book says so. And God cannot lie. You're a real Christian, don't be ashamed of it. I, for one, am not one from bumper stickers. I'm not so much from shirts, though I have a couple. I just try to be the real deal. Imperfect, I should say, and flawed. I know that about myself. You don't have to point it out. Don't talk back to me. <laughs> Maybe I'm flawed. 
But I can tell you one thing. I'm convinced of the sovereignty of God. And my heart is fixed. And my heart is set. And I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to those that believe, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. Sovereignty of God. Whether you see it or not, the unseen hand of God is ruling in your life. Even if we had folks here who don't acknowledge God and showed up for some reason or other, wouldn't change the fact that God is ruling in their lives. But we have to come to an understanding here. So I'm encouraging you to go over those verses. I told you to write them down. Don't just read them. Meditate on them. Take it word by word. As it is in truth, the word of God, the inspiration of God. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. This is no ordinary book. It's telling the future. It's telling your future. Today, in your heart of hearts, God is ruling and reigning. And you're not in this church today, this meeting, because it's a mistake. There is no such thing as serendipity unless we attach it to providence, the sovereignty of God. There's a reason that you heard this message. God is ruling over everything. And I ask you today to ask yourself the question, is he really ruling in your heart by your will? Understanding the gist of the message. Is he ruling in your heart by your will when you know that to really live by this book is going to cause you some problems with your own family? with your own friends, of other you know, professing Christians, and it just goes on and on, and say to yourself, I don't care. I am persuaded. I'm convinced. I pray today that you would give your heart, your life, to Christ. Your life to Christ. I did it 46, 7 years ago now. I have not regretted one single day ever. Nor was I ever tempted to go back to my old life because it was better, because it wasn't. And you will find the same thing. Let Christ rule in your life. Learn this book, and you're going to find comfort and peace and assurance. Father, I pray today for everyone within the sound of my voice that they would understand the sovereignty of your person, of who you are, that you rule in everything. Nothing is an accident, as I said. Accidents do happen. Things do happen, but not without your watchful eye, not without you knowing or even approving, as hard as that can be when we read of difficult things. And the sovereign is on his way. The stone cut without hands is coming. And we are taught in the scriptures that we are not to deny him down here before men. Because if we do, he will deny us before the angels in heaven. Cause your children to have courage and stand up. Cause your people to have the power of the same Holy Spirit that wrote this book. And formed and created the world and the universe. God, we acknowledge your sovereignty, your power. That you are limitless and there is no way to measure you. In living or in dying, we belong to you. And that brings us peace. And that brings us joy. We give you the praise. We give you the glory. We give you the honor this day for all that you have done, are doing, and have yet to do. And we'll be another week closer to seeing you and meeting you face to face. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.